You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Well, good morning again. My heart is full. God is faithful. Amen. Um, if you have a Bible, turn me to Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. Um, we're going to look at, uh, we've been going to walk through the scriptures for the next nine months, actually the whole Bible. Um, we're going to kind of hit the highlights, if you will. And we spent a little time yesterday looking at, or la- I can see saying yesterday, last Sunday looking at Genesis and how all of scripture points to Jesus, that there, the Bible's about a lot of things. There's wisdom and there's inspiration and there's all kinds of things. But, but the reality is that everything about scripture is about Christ and his coming and his redemption and what he's doing uh, in the world. And so we don't want to miss that plot. And, crea- and Genesis is no, no different. And so I want to just uh, read a couple verses again from Genesis chapter 1. Um, and then I'm going to read a couple verses from Genesis chapter 2. And we'll jump around a little bit. But I want to kind of spend our time here thinking about the song of creation, Uh, this opening uh, chapter of the Bible, this how things began, what God was up to, what he was creating, what he was building, and how we can participate um, in that. So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And this is the word of God for us. Um, this morning. And so we could think about the scriptures a a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that that I think is helpful, and if you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible, it thinks about it in terms of a song. (laughs) And I love love that because I think the scriptures really are a a love song. It's a love song about a God who made all things, made you and me, and is redeeming and restoring all things. A God that didn't let creation just kind of drift on its own, but came to pursue it and love it and redeem it and bring it back to himself. And and like with any good love song, we know about love song because if you ever been in love, you get your heart broken a lot, don't you? That any good love song has ups and downs and heartbreak and and loss. Now, also, if you were to look at the scriptures and think of it in terms of music and and rhythm, you could also think of it as a symphony. Um, The opening of of Genesis is is a symphony being kind of the overture, and then Revelation being the finale. But as you look at this symphony, there's all kinds of high notes and low notes. There's echoes and beats and rhythms, and there's a crescendo. And the crescendo is about the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And at the center of the song is God revealed in Jesus Christ making all things. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, he promises to make all things New. It's, it's a song, and it has rhythms and beats, and it goes up and it goes down. And I think what, what is important about the scriptures is that if it's a song, that we want to get this song, this story into our bones, right? 
I'm a big music guy. I've always loved music. I mean, there are many people that don't like music on some level. Like, we all have our personal preferences and tastes. I always, I'm a little skeptical. Like, I just don't like music. It's like, okay, something's wrong with you. Um, but, but when we encounter music, right, it's not just something that we hear and we move on. It's something that gets in us, right? I mean, especially those of us that have children. I mean, how many kid songs are just like, uh, an earworm stuck, lodged in our heads that we just cannot get out. I mean, there's certain songs we want to get out of there, but there's something about songs and rhythm that stick with us. I always laugh about preaching sermons because a lot of times what you're going to remember after a Sunday is the songs we sang, not the sermon that was preached. That's okay. I'm okay with that. So maybe I should start singing my sermons. But, um, but when you teach kids how to learn early on, how do they learn the alphabet? How do they learn to memorize things? They sing songs. That was the participation part. They sing songs, right? It's like not in our school system. We just kind of, it's free learning. We do whatever. No, you sing songs to memorize things. And so Genesis opens with this song of creation and invites us to play, invites us to participate, to see what God is doing, what God is making, what God is, is building. And that even though, as we'll see next week, the world goes spiraling out of control because of sin, God loves his world. It's good. It's right. It's beautiful. And he's come to redeem it and restore it and allows us to, to play. I love uh, Eugene Peterson. I know I, I quote him a lot. I'll quote him again today a couple times, but he was a pastor and a writer that I really uh, just have found helpful. And he talks about Genesis being a tool for our formation and a tool for our growth. And he says, Genesis, the book of Genesis is often neglected. And here's what he says. I've come to think that Genesis 1 and 2, prominent as they are in launching us into the grand narrative of the Bible, are among the most underappreciated and underused texts for shaping an obedient and reverent life of following Jesus in our daily, ordinary, working and worshiping lives. And I've come to believe that more and more as I study the scriptures and as I get to know the world of grace, if you want to call it that, is that Genesis is vital for us understanding what God is up to and what we get to participate in. So let's look at this song of creation uh, for a few moments here uh, this morning. And so in, woven into this song of creation is, I think, two separate songs. And the first song is the song of time, and I think that has to do with Genesis 1. And I think the second song is, the time, is a song of place, and that has to do with Genesis 2. So let's look at Genesis 1 first, this song of time. What, what, what do we mean by that? Well, if you notice in, in Genesis chapter 1, as I read the first couple verses, and if you're familiar with the Bible at all, it's about God creating, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything we see, everything we don't see, the earth was without form and void. It was darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So there's nothingness, there's void, there's no form, there's no shape. And then God says... Let there be light, and there was light, and then God says, let there be an expanse, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together, and God said, right, and there'll be vegetation, and there'll be animals. God is speaking all of creation into existence. But do you notice how the creation account ends in chapter 2? In chapter 2, on the seventh day, notice how it shifts in verse 2, in chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, <clears throat> and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. It seems like the first part of creation is about time. On the first day, on the second day, on the third day, on the fourth day, on the fifth day, on the sixth day. But now on the seventh day, God rested from his creation and said, this is a holy day. It's to be a different Day because I rested, you should rest. All right, there's this, this time structure woven into creation that often we try to kind of push 
against what God is setting up for us to say there's a certain way in which creation is supposed to work and function that I made it on the first day and the second day I put things in order and then when you get to the seventh day I want you to rest I want you to shut it down I want you to change how time is is used right we're not very we have a very strange relationship with time in North America. I think um, traveling really helps you if you can get out of here for a minute and go to other places. Um, I, I saw Melissa smile there. Uh, go to Latin America, go to Mexico, right? There is no time there, right? It's like you show up when you want to, you do what you want to do. Many years ago, actually, I um, had the opportunity to go down. We used to do a lot of missions in Mexico, and I uh, got to preach this sermon. I'm this young youth pastor, don't know what I'm, you know, I got like my, you know, four-minute, like really good sermon, um, and they, they go like two hours. So they, after I was done, I'm like, amen. And he's like, can you keep going? You know, I'm just like, ah, I don't have much else. I'll just read the Bible. You know, I don't know what to do, right? There's no time, right? The service is supposed to start at 10. People show up at 11, right? They're, they're not a slave to time. We often say things like, if we could just get through this day, right? Get to the next day. If I can just hurry and get over here, right? The, this relationship to time, we talk about wasting time, Right? And I'm going to quote um, Eugene Peterson again, but he says that in our relationship with time, I think one of the struggles is two kind of polar opposite things is hurry and procrastination. And he says, hurry turns away the gift of time and creates compulsiveness and the illusion that we can control it, right? Like time is our thing. I decide what it does. I decide how it works. And so when we get in a hurry, we're always trying to push through the illusion that somehow it's ours, right? Like time is just a gift. Like we're just here, right? It's, it's God has given it to us, but often we're trying to move through it, right? We're always just like, okay, hurry up, right? I mean, some of you, you know, that are constantly late, you don't even think of time. You know who you are. Um, but, you know, you're wasting everyone else's time, but that's a whole different sermon. Um, but we're always frantic. We're always hurried. And I've said this many times to you that the, one of the most devastating things to our spiritual life is hurry. It's really difficult to love someone well when you're in a hurry. It's really difficult to focus on God when you're in a hurry. I don't know many people that can pull that off well. How many times those of you that have children have been standing by the front door and you're late to get somewhere and you're just raging and yelling at the kids because you got to get in the car and you got, right? Like in a hurried, frantic space, like nobody's loving peacefully their, their kids in that moment, right? In hurry. I got to get to the thing. I got to get here. I got to get there. Hurry. It's devastating to our spiritual life. Think of every war that was started, every act of violence. It's always a semblance of hurry because I'm not where I need to be. You're in my way. I need to go through you so that I can get where I need to be. The song of creation is not in a hurry. Time is a gift from God. But also, I think there's also this other side that he mentioned about procrastination because procrastination is really just a lazy inattentiveness to a life of obedience and adoration. It's laziness. Procrastination is putting off the things we know we should be doing, but we're not doing it because we're not paying attention to it, right? And also deep inside of procrastination, I know sometimes we think, well, I'm a procrastinator. I need better productivity skills. I should read this book on habits, and, and those can be good things. But procrastination at its core is I feel like if I do this, my, my boss is going to yell at me, and I don't know if I can do it well, so I don't want to do it, so I put it off, right? You ever done that? You're just insecure about the thing you need to do, right? Or you're just like, I, I don't know if I have the right skills or talents to do it, so I put it off, right? 
But procrastination has this built-in attentiveness that we need to see all that's going on around us. And there's this beautiful world that God's called us to participate in and putting off things, saying, well, I can just watch a little more Netflix. There's this gift of creation, the song of creation where God invites us to participate. And hurry and procrastination really destroy the ability to see the song that's at work and that's at play. That's why Eugene says in Genesis 1 is not in a hurry and it does not procrastinate. <laughs> I love that. Um, and it isn't because God creates in this very, very unhurried pace. He takes this world that, is, that is, has no void and no shape and speaks it into a distance. And then day one and day two and day three. And then all that he has made, he steps back from this beautiful creation and says it's very good. And then he rests on that day. I don't know about you, but that's a picture of an unhurriedness. There's no hurry here, right? There's an enjoyment here. There's a gift here. That's what Sabbath is supposed to do for us, to remember what we're a part of and what God has made, that it's good, right? You're not just human creators or human beings. That's why we need to shut it down (laughs) once a week and to remember that God is at work. Now, as we get into the creation narrative back to chapter 1, there's this beautiful rhythmic structure in creation. I think it's really easy to miss it because I think a lot of times we read creation and all cre- the creation counts become is just a debate on, is it a little 24 hours? You know, these really hours, like what are we doing, right? It's a debate on, did God create all things or didn't he? Does God exist? And I don't think that's the reason that we have the scriptures. It's a song of invitation to bring us into the flow of what God is up to because right in the middle of this beautiful creation count, and again, this, you don't get this in the Hebrew. This is why I, I, did, I did really enjoy Hebrew studies in seminary because the Hebrew language is very rhythmic, right? There's metaphor and there's rhythm and there's song to it. There's like these broken down things that are very subversive that, that as they write down the scriptures, it's supposed to invite you into something else. It's actually supposed to invite you into a song. So notice with me a couple things here. Notice the, the, the um, uh, where are we at here? Sorry, I lost my place. Notice the, the rhythm, how it's arranged, and you got the seven days of creation, right? So there's a structure, seven days. And then six times uh, creation work is introduced with God said. You notice that in verse 3, and then on and on, right? And God said, let there be light in verse 6. And God said in verse 9. And God said in verse 11. And God said in 14. And God said, think about the, the rhythm of that. And God said, and God said, right? There's a, there's a rhythm, there's a pace to it. It's inviting us into something. But then after God says, it's followed by, and there was. Followed by the number of the day, and there was. Then it came into being. You think about that, that structure. Think about the, the rhythm of that, how it's written down. There's a particular rhythm and timing to the all of creation. Now, What's so, I think, important about this, as you get down to the end, how does it switch? Notice how the timing structure switches. It gets to the Sabbath. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, notice how the number's up front now. So in Genesis 1, the number's at the end, right? And God made on the first day, right? It's at the end. But now he moves the number up to seven. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the notice. He says it again, the seventh day. And God, verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on, on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. Now, if you're just reading this in English and you don't have any idea of the Hebrew and how it works, this is very intentional. 
there's a rhythm and a structure to it. There's a timing to it. So the song of creation, the structure is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. Did you catch it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. Did you catch it? Right? Do you notice it? He mentions it three times. That's the only time. In, in, in Genesis 1, he mentions all the days, day one, day two, day three, right? But then on the, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, seven is mentioned three times. That's for emphasis. There's a reason for that. He's inviting us. The writer's inviting us to be part of this song. That God is taking this creation that is empty and it's void, and then through creation, he's filling this void day one, day two, day three, day four. And then when he gets to seven, God rested and says, I want you to rest. I want you to make that day sacred and holy. I want you to make that day different than all the other days. Now, this is hard for us to understand. Here's why. I have a point to all this. In the ancient world, in most of church history, scripture was read aloud. We didn't have study Bibles in front of us. We didn't, most of the church for history didn't, if they were lucky, they had a little fragment of scripture. So they would have to memorize the scriptures. They would have to sing the scriptures, right? They didn't have the access that we had. So think about that. If you're a people that are weekly gathering in worship, weekly hearing the word of God, it's all built in there for the ear because faith comes by hearing. So you're hearing and God said, and God said, and God said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. On the seventh day, on the seventh day, God made that day holy. It was for the ear to enter into the song of creation. The point of it was to get in your bones. That's why Colossians 1, this beautiful picture of Jesus, the God who created all things and made all things and sustains all things, that's why they believe that was an early song of the church. Because I think something about songs work on a different level than just words, right? When you hear that song, it sticks with you for a long time after. And so this invitation, again, I think it's funny that we're so obsessed with, with podcasts and audiobooks now, but I think they're just tapping into something that was ancient. Because when you listen to a podcast or you listen to voice, you have to do a little different work, don't you? You don't have a visual in front of you, but you, you have to kind of focus in. Right? So imagine opening the scriptures and all you have is scripture. You don't have video. You don't have anyone acting it out, right? That's my uh, acting it out. That's how you actors do it. Um, but they have to listen in. What, what's God saying? What's he up to? And God said, and it was good. And God said, and it was good. And God said, it was good. All of a sudden, it starts getting in your bones. It starts getting into your life. You begin to realize that you're part of something bigger and something deeper and more profound. Now, there's, there's also more rhythms that are built into the creation. I just love this stuff because it just makes me just happy in so many different ways. Um, but God said, let there be, and there was, and there was formlessness, and there was void, and then he created all things. But, but have you ever thought about the seven days of creation, that seven days of creation, and every four weeks, we have 28 days of the moon circling the earth. I know you think about that on a daily basis. So in your week, there's seven days, and there's four weeks, and every 28 days, the moon circles the earth. It's God's little gift to us that the whole thing is a song that works in time and has a particular rhythm and a t- particular beat. And the rhythm is repeated 12 times in a year. And obviously the 12 times mean the 12 disciples of Israel. No, they don't. They don't. 
That was just seeing if you're paying attention. Don't. That's not. It could be, but it's not. All right? But every year, 12 times a year, the earth will circle the, the moon, and this rhythm is built into creation. And, and because of that, we have summer, and <clears throat> we have fall, and we have winter, and we have spring with births, new life, and we have summer growth, and we have autumn harvest, and we have winter sleep. Now, I have to say, I'm new to all of this because I grew up in Southern California, where we have mild weather, and then we have a little milder weather. That's called winter. Um, and, and my wife knows I have a little problem. If the sun doesn't come out, I'm just depressed and sad and just like, God, I think you're calling me to Hawaii. It's very obvious. Um, but over time, I been to, begin to appreciate the seasons. Why? Because it's built into us. It's built into the world. This, this idea of, of warmth and growth and then winter where things go fallow, like it's okay to kind of rest and know that the, the, the world outside is cold and frozen. It's okay to just cook up some chili and get some cornbread going, right? And just maybe this is a time to just rest and relax. I think woven into the, the, the seasons is, is this gift because we always have this expectation, right? Like, it's, like spring is coming, fall is coming, right? Like and depending on where you live in the country, I get it now. I lived in Michigan in, in seminary and like the snow was on the ground for like nine months out of the year. I understand why in the summer everybody leaves, and goes to the lake. I totally get it. You can't live like that for too long. But it's the rhythms of creation. We're full of rhythms, pulse and breath. Our hearts beat in time at 60, 80, 100 times a minute, pumping blood through our veins. Our lungs expand and contract, pushing oxygen through our bodies 15 to 30 times a minute. You ever like pause and think about your breathing and it kind of freaks you out, right? Like you start like going like, oh no, I'm thinking about breathing, right? It's kind of weird. But just think about all day long, you're just, you're breathing. Your heart is pumping. It's beating in a song, in a rhythm. It's all the time that God is showing us, the time in which he invites us into. And, and I love what John Levinson said. He says, creation has this liturgical flavor to it is that we get in on the structure. We, we can't get outside of it. We have to deal with the seasons. We have to deal with our hearts and our lungs. We have to deal with, with, with ups and with downs. That's why I think Ecclesiastes chapter three um, talks about it in this way, that there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal. Uh, it doesn't mean go kill people, just so you know. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. There's a, a season and a time for everything. Genesis 1 is an invitation into considering the song of time and the gift of time that God is orchestrating and working through all of creation, through our lives. Now, secondly, where it gets more specific is it's also a song of place. Song of place. So you've noticed that chapter one of Genesis and chapter two are different creation accounts, right? One focuses kind of on the, the cosmic, you know, the heavens and the earth. God creates everything, right? Animals and plants and humans and, and, and everything we see and everything we don't see. But then in Genesis two, the author gets real specific about place, about place. He situates, situates us in the Garden of Eden. Did you notice that? And we haven't read it yet, but 
if you know the scripture, Genesis 2, right? In verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there. And then we see the, the rivers, and then we see God create man in his own image. But, but you notice how humanity is dependent on God. God is the one who breathes life into them, but then God puts them in a particular place. The Garden of Eden is, you could say, the earth. There's a particular time, but there's also a particular place, because that's where God works. It's a story and a song of place. He doesn't work in abstraction. He works in a particular time, in a particular place, with particular people. He says, I'm going to put you in this, this garden, and I'm going to uh, invite you into stewarding all the animals, all the plants, all the things that you see And so everything that God is up to, everything that he's working in our lives is always local in neighborhood and home and work and relationships. He doesn't say, I'm going to put you everywhere, but I'm going to put you in a particular place. And here's one of the detriments of forgetting this in our mobile generation, is that in our mobile generation, we're everywhere but nowhere. We're everywhere but nowhere. Right? We always want to get out of this place. We believe that there's utopia somewhere else. Right? And, and movements all over human history have always tried to get out of a particular place and try to create utopia on earth. That could be politically, socially, religiously. These utopias where we can live unhindered and free and blessed. Right? So if I don't like this place, I can go to another place. But God is always working in your little garden of Eden, in your little section. He puts Adam and Eve there, breathes life in them, says, I want you to steward that, that place, that little garden. So you and I all have little plots of garden, right? You might literally have a garden that you need to attend to. Or metaphorically, your home, your work, your relationships, your neighbors, that's your little garden in the world. He says, I want to place you there, and I'm going to work life in you there. I'm going to um, be with you there. And we know in chapter 3, things go off the rails a little bit, quite a bit. But that doesn't change that God's creation is good, and it's to be steward, and it's not ours, and we don't own it, right? So he puts them in this garden. Our propensity is to escape the garden, escape the places in which God has placed us to build gardens somewhere else. And it's funny because utopia actually means, by definition, no place. (laughs) You can dwell on that for a little while. But God creates Adam and Eve out of the stuff of creation, and then he creates Eve and breathes life into them and says it's good that you're not alone. He creates human relationships that that life can only be good and thrive with each other because we have a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who's this, this eternal community, and he brings relationships in the world, marriage relationship, neighborly relationships, all kinds of different relationships to say it's not good that you're alone. Adam couldn't function by just being a silo, right? There's something to that, how often we, we skim over that, that, that it would, does not work. And especially as Americans that are so isolated and so individualistic, we just go like, I'm my own island, I do my own thing, that you are not who you are apart from a community, apart from a family, apart from relationships. You can't escape it. 
right? I do a lot of uh, weddings, and every wedding that I do, I always say something to the effect of, just so you know, this couple is not the people that they are today by themselves. It's the family and friends and communities that are around them today that have made them into the people that they are today. Can't escape it. That's why we're so big on community and, and connection here. You don't live the Christian life in isolation. And so God places them in their Eden, their earth, their little corner to remind them that you have, you don't own it, but you're called to steward it. That you're called to be in a relationship with other people. You're not called to be a silo. And that I am working right in the midst of all of that, and it is good and it is right. That they, and this is what's always, it kind of breaks my heart. And again, I don't, it's easy to say, like, I wouldn't have done that, and I would have been faithful. And, you know, when God says, you know, you can do anything you want here, but there's regulations, there's boundaries, because you don't own this place, right? Just don't eat from that one tree. And they, what do they do? Go eat from that tree. But here they are in perfect harmony, right, with God, perfect relationship, perfect relationship with each other, right? That's why relationships are hard, because they're flawed by sin, right? Perfect relationship with the creation itself, and it's all good. And he says, this is all yours. Yeah, there's some boundaries, because I'm wise and I know what's good for you, right? It's that God is a, a loving father. That's why he gives us his commands. That's why he gives us laws and regulations. Why? It's because he loves us. It's like a good father's not like, hey, hey, kids, why don't you eat this bag of glass? It's a little hard to swallow, but it'll be good for you, right? No monster would do that. All right, just go play in the street. It's fine. I know there's like 50 cars going this way and that. Like, no loving father or parent or mother would do that, right? We have rules and we have regulations and boundaries, right, for our good, for our thriving, right? There's limits to things. And he says, I put you in this garden to thrive. And it always breaks my heart because they had it all, right? They were naked and free, kids, right? And even that right, gets broken, right? How much shame we have around that, how much, how, how it exposes us to be who we really are. And they had it all. But the good news of creation, this gift of time and this gift of, of place is that even in that, even when we said, no, thank you, even when we try to run away, even when we try to make our own boundaries and our own ways of doing and being, God continues to pursue us. That one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel, you don't have to go very far, is right in the beginning of the creation account that after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, what does God do? He actually comes and he clothes them. You ever think about that? He clothes them with skin. They're naked. They've sinned. They've rebelled against the holy God. And what does God do? His response is, you're dead to me. His response is, there's some ramifications for this, but I still love you. And he clothes them. Such a beautiful picture of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the kid who runs away. And God comes, represented by the Father, to come invite him back into the party and says, I love you. I never left you. All that I have is yours. It's always been yours. And this beautiful world that we have and these gardens that God has given us, this time he's given us and this, this song of creation that he's given us and invited us to play in is yours. He says, I've never le left you or forsaken you. You may not understand it. You may not see it. You may not want it, but I've never left you for one second. And the gospel proves it because as we move into the New Testament, and we see these beautiful glimpses of Jesus everywhere. I love the, as Jesus comes on the, on the scene, 
as the creator God in flesh. We, we looked at John chapter one last week, but actually when you get to the resurrection accounts, we see these hints of creation. John is so brilliant at this. So we saw in John one, Jesus is the word. He always was. He was at creation, right? Sustaining all things, making all things. But then when you get to John 20 in the resurrection accounts, it says, uh, John 20, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, we could just read that and go, oh, those are some nice details. It was dark out the first day of the week. The first day of the week is a way of John going wink and nod. New creation has come. This is the eighth day of the week. God has resurrected from the dead. New creation has broken in by the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Now, think about the detail. It was dark. Wasn't creation dark, formless, and void at the beginning? Wink, wink, nod, nod. Something else is going on here through Jesus, right? The, the, the darkness, the void, all this darkness and chaos that was all around that had no shape and had no void, the creator God has actually walked into humanity, has walked into the world and said, that's not going to have the last say. I'm making all things because when you get down to chapter or verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and he saw two angels white sitting there, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away the Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. If Jesus said to her, and Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the garden, gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. The gardener? That's not random facts. The one at creation who made all things, the one that John 1 talks about, the gardener, there's a confusion there, but the, the gardener has come, the new creation has come, God has come to make all things New. This song of creation has been going on for all of eternity, and it's rooted and it's found ultimately, primarily in Jesus, the one who makes all things new. Have you ever noticed when you read the Gospels, if you've read them, how not in a hurry Jesus is? He's never in a hurry, ever. I don't think ever. <laughs> His disciples are in a hurry. Okay, Jesus, right? Should we cut off their ear? Should we call down fire from heaven? Right? Should we just kill them all? Right? Always in a hurry. Always friend. Jesus, what do we do? Right? What does this mean? Right? And he's just like, take a chill pill, y'all. I mean, that's in the message version. But, you know, it's, it's there. Just relax. I know what I'm doing. He's never coercing people. Hey, believe now or you're going to hell. Right? Get in on this. Right? Here's the kingdom of God. It's like leaven. It's like a seed. It seems insignificant, but it grows and it expands, right? He's never in a hurry. There's a book uh, that someone wrote called The Speed of God, which I think is a fantastic title. In The Speed of God, he makes the argument that Jesus never went faster than three miles per hour in his whole life. Because he was never in a hurry. Around Palestine, around the ancient world, 
the God of heaven and earth is not in a hurry. Why? Because he's the creator God, and the song of creation has a particular time and rhythm to it. It's inviting us to play. It's inviting us to be part of this. And we know that when we're in a hurry and when we're not seeing things rightly, right, all kinds of sin, all kinds of nonsense come out of us, right? We're always trying to get to the next thing. We're trying to, you know, get over here or get over there. If I just accumulate this or if I just meet this goal, if I just meet the right person, if I just, right, and it's always hurry and it's always frantic. And yet what God is reminding us today is that God isn't in a hurry. And his creation isn't in a hurry, but he's invited us to play. And I think there's maybe two things, two implications I want to end with today when we think about being part of the song of creation. is one I think has to do with um, time. And it has to do with how do I tend my garden today? Now, again, you may have a literal garden. Maybe you need to tend it. Maybe it's getting a little brown. Maybe it needs some water. But your little garden, your little Eden, your, your work, your family, your relationships, your neighborhood, right? Your little corner of God's Eden, right? Have you taken seriously the call to steward that, to see it for what it is? Or I think it's a great time of reflection for us to say, the way I see time is always got to get to the next thing, got to get here, got to, you know, pay the bills, got to, whatever it is. And those things are all part of it. I get it. But what is God calling me to tend? What is he calling me to see? What, is he calling me to slow down? Is he calling me to say, I've just been so frantic. I'm not even seeing the beauty of creation. There's all these gifts all around me. God's glory is everywhere. God's grace is everywhere. And yet I don't even have eyes to see it. Because I'm so busy trying to get to the next thing, trying to build the next thing, whatever that thing is. So I just ask the question, how can you tend to your garden? What relationships need tending? Where is God calling you to serve and help and pray and how can you tend it well? And secondly, I think which really helps seeing creation for what it is, is Sabbath. And I know we're not great Sabbatarians here, um, and especially American culture. I don't mean here as our church, but, but practicing Sabbath. Can you, what does it look like to take a day to remember that God rested and so can you? Like it's insane to think that God rested, but I don't need rest. Right? And it wasn't that God was tired, but he was setting up the order of creation to say that you, you take a day off. Why? To remember all that's going on around you. To remember that God is good, that God made all things good, that you're not just a human producer or human doing, you're a human being. So what does it look like in your week to have a day that is different than all the other days? Perhaps it's on a Sunday. I know for a lot of us, Sundays work really well to be kind of our Sabbath day, Right? Maybe turn off our phones, maybe do some different things. Maybe go stare at a tree for a while. Go look at some art, right, Matt? Right, to do something different that's to remind us that we don't have to just produce things. We don't have to just get to the next thing, but to have a day to go, look who we're a part of. Look how amazing this is. Look how good guacamole is. Like, like let's celebrate those things. Christians are not good at this. We're not good at enjoying all the things around us. We just want to debate everybody. We just want to be in everybody's face and prove that we're right and that they're wrong. And there's this beauty of creation and this song that's going on, and we don't even see it. We don't even see it. Like, go for a hike. That's very spiritual, right? Play with your kids. Go play Uno, right? Go play memory with your daughter who cheats. She's such a cheater. You heard me, June. Are you in here? Dad's publicly rebuking you. 
She just like slides the car. And then we play Candyland. She's like looking up the cars like, oh, that's a good one. I'm just going to pull that. You don't believe in original sin. I don't know. Sorry. Pray for my family. Play on the floor. Play Legos. Go walk in the park. Get in tune. Get your feet. I was just talking to a really um, pretty successful CEO who happened to be a Christian. And he said, you know, the thing that I do when things are kind of out of control is I just get my feet in the sand. We don't have sand here, but well, maybe, I don't know, beach volleyball down the street. But um, feet in the dirt to remember that I'm part of this creation. It's not just about doing and making and building and et cetera. So what does Sabbath look like for you to reorient ourselves to the awe and the wonder of creation, to the song of time, this rhythm, the structure that's going on, that's continually going on as God sustains all things, this little, uh, this calling to steward all that God has made to rest, to remember that God rested and made a day holy so that we can rest and be reminded of those things. And I get it. Like, I want to be careful when I talk about Sabbath because I know for some of us, like, work has to be this thing. We don't get days off. But what are, like, little mini Sabbaths that we can give ourselves to reframe even time and have a better relationship with time? Because the great Sabbath and the great picture of Sabbath is Jesus. That ultimately we get to rest in him. That's what Hebrews 4 says. As we come to the table, I I was just thinking about Hebrews chapter uh, 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 8 says this. For if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his that the picture of Sabbath is rooted in Jesus, you don't have to perform for him. The gospel says the opposite. <laughs> that performing's done, he performed for you. He gave his life for you. So you don't have to perform. You receive it by faith. You rest in that. And that should shape how we rest, how we work, that you don't have to be a human striver, that if I'm not hitting these goals or hitting the, the, my portfolio's not big enough or I don't have enough money for retirement or I, I'm not doing, you know, the church isn't big enough for my liking or I'm not launching enough things or whatever. Like, like Sabbath rest says, rest in Jesus. He's not looking at you going like, you're such a failure. Could you just do more for me? I know some of you have grown up in traditions. That's all you've ever heard. It's the gospel of commitment, right? Do more for Jesus, right? And then God will finally love you. Like that's maybe not as direct as it's been, but that's how you experienced it. Do more for Jesus. He's done everything for me. My life is simply receiving it by faith and just saying, thank you, God. What do you want me to do? I don't have to earn anything. Baptism says that God is faithful even when we are not. So in Jesus, he becomes our Sabbath. And so you can experience him in that way. In those moments where you feel like a failure or you feel like you're not doing enough or whatever it may be, as you can rest in him, you can bring it to God and say, God, be my rest today. Be the one who I know says I'm worthy and valuable and loves me and showed it perfectly in the cross of Christ. And so every week we have this visible, tangible, I know we don't do baptisms every week, It's a visible, tangible reality of God's faithfulness, but so is these simple elements of bread and cup. That Christ's body was was broken. Christ's blood was shed so that we could be freed, we could be forgiven, we could enter into new life with God, we could enter into new relationship with God. God, Jesus, becomes our Sabbath. He gets broken and he rests in the tomb so that we could come alive in him.
And so if you're a believer in Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, we just want to invite you to the table. Uh, we have a simple way of taking communion here. There'll be two servers up in the front. Break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. Um, if you're not comfortable with that or you have um, allergy uh, or gluten-free situation, uh, we, we do have uh, some bread in the middle. Or if you just want to grab the cups, you can. There's also a, um, a cup in the middle you can use as well if you're not comfortable with that. But we just want to invite you uh, to the table this morning to know that God loves us, that God is making, has made the world, but he's also making all things new, and he's done it ultimately through his son. So with that, let us pray. Father, thank you for the song of creation, the song of time, the song of place. And forgive us, God, of the times we're, we're trying to just move through time, get to the next thing. And yet you've called us and invited us to play in the song that's right here in front of us. Forgive us of, of thinking that our place where we are, there's got to be somewhere else that's better. <laughs> trying to find our little Eden somewhere else. God, help us be good stewards of the places that you've called us, our little gardens, the relationships of the communities, the, the work that you've given us. God, help us be faithful in those things because you're faithful to us. And God, thank you for Jesus who is our Sabbath that we can rest in him, that the gospel says that you don't have to earn your way to God. You don't have to to make him love you. He already proved his love by dying in our place. We just have to receive the gift by faith. So help us do that, however much faith we have. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.